Hey everybody, this is So Heidi, and you're listening to the Successful Fashion Designer Podcast. We all know that the fashion industry is brutally competitive and it takes loads of hard work to get ahead. The problem is that everyone's secretive and tight-lipped about their ways. After working as a designer and educator for over a decade, I wanted to help break down those barriers and bring you valuable knowledge from industry experts, and this show is exactly where you'll find that. Whether you're trying to break into the fashion world, make yourself more marketable, launch your own label, or become a successful freelancer, we'll help you get ahead in the cutthroat fashion industry. This is episode 51 of the Successful Fashion Designer Podcast, and today I'm chatting with Allison Flom. Allison is a serial entrepreneur who had no previous experience in the fashion industry before she started her line of belts called Bello Belts. Now, this is Allison's fourth business that she started, and she's still quite young. Don't let that number make you think she's been doing this forever. And she's got a great business savvy behind her. First of all, her belts are amazing. They're handcrafted in New York City using same quality materials as ultra premium designers. They just don't have the flashy brand names or the price tags that come with them. Allison focuses on a few key things in her business. First, she made sure to stay with local production. It helps her keep a lower inventory, get lower minimums, and get better control over her product, the quality, and have relationships with her vendors. She also takes a very business-first approach, which is really interesting uh, and kind of a contrast to what you hear from a lot of fashion designers. With no background in the fashion industry, she tackled this business, yes, with a great design eye, and she wanted to create a product that looked and felt great, but she also really went after it with a business-first perspective. She focused on things like knowing her customers, Customer, testing her product, getting feedback, and really analyzing the numbers to dictate which direction the business should go, when they should pivot, when they should introduce a new style, drop a style, things like that. I love how much she and I kind of geek out on some of the same business stuff. So you're in for a treat for all of the great things she's done to help grow her business. She's also done really smart things like partnering with charities, doing pop-up shops, and she's now exploring wholesale to gain more exposure in her market. I know you're going to love this episode. Now, if you know anyone who is trying to start a brand or who already has a brand and you know would benefit from this episode, do them a favor and share this episode with them. This may be in a Facebook group that you follow for Startup Fashionistas. Go ahead and share this. I'm sure everybody would love hearing this great episode and all the insights that Allison has to share. All right, let's jump on to the interview with Allison. As always, to access the show notes for today's episode, visit sfdnetwork.com slash 51. Welcome, Allison, to the Successful Fashion Designer Podcast. Can you please start by introducing yourself and letting everybody know what you do in the fashion industry? Hi, so I'm Allison Flom. I'm the founder of Bellow belts. We make unique handcrafted belts for women and men that have interchangeable straps and buckles. All of our belts are handcrafted in New York City, and we offer about a thousand designs that customers can create by mixing and matching their straps and buckles. Awesome. And okay, I, there's so many things I want to talk to you about, but to start kind of from the beginning, how did you get started with with this whole venture? Did you come from a fashion background? Did you go to school for this? Or what did that all look like? So I kind of came into this fashion world a little randomly. Um, I I'm actually a serial entrepreneur, so I've built three other companies before this, all in like very different backgrounds. I also worked in finance, so my background is pretty mixed, but I've always had a passion for fashion, and uh, the way I came up with the idea, I, I was actually just out to dinner with some friends, and one of my friends like literally just insulted my outfit. I was wearing this like white shirt dress, and she was like, you know what, you're your outfit would look so much better with a belt. With a belt, she's like calling it all tenty. So I started thinking to myself, like, where do you like? Where do you get belts? And uh, you know, I'd think through like the department stores, like the different specialty stores, and a lot of the belts like I used to buy were like the super high end, like really expensive belts. Um, and I couldn't really find like high quality belts elsewhere. So I, I kind of just thought, why not try making them? Um, so I ended up, you know, it kind of just started as a, as a fun little project and a bit of an experiment. So I went through the garment district. I, I live in New York City. 
and uh, found a belt manufacturer and uh, went to a leather store and, you know, went through and looked at different leather swatches and found a buckle maker and just kind of played around and ended up coming up with a, a whole collection. So my background was, was never really in fashion. I was a former retail analyst, but that was like over a decade ago. Okay. So it really started because your friend made a, a nice friend comment, giving you the honest truth about your outfit. <laughs> and you thought, okay, where do I actually find this item that I want? And you saw a little bit of a gap in the market. So kind of started creating it yourself. Um, when you when you went through like the garment district and you started finding, you know, some vendors and some suppliers for the leather and the, and the buckles, had you really thought like, I'm going to make this into a brand? and then try to sell it and see what happens? Uh, in the beginning, it was definitely an idea I had. I didn't, I kind of ran it as an experiment at first. Um, like, let, let's see if there's a business here. And, um, you know, I looked at, I looked at the, you know, if you looked across the market, there were a number of these digitally native consumer brands being launched in other verticals. And I saw, I saw a number in the belt space, but most of those were men's belts, not women's. Mm. And I actually thought back to myself, um, you know, waistlines were starting to get higher again. For years, they were really low. And so when waistlines tend to be lower people don't usually wear as many belts because they highlight their hips instead of their waist, which tends to be a, a wider, you know, part of the body on most people. And so when waist signs go up, people wear more belts. Um, if, you look, if I look through like my mom's closet, she had so many belts like 20 years ago. I mean, and I, I just started thinking, I didn't see that look really, you know, very much of it in the stores. A lot of times belts are an afterthought for brands. So I kind of thought having like a belt only brand could be an interesting niche in the market. And so before I set out to build a business, I kind of looked as like, is there a business here? Um, and so I started creating some samples and showing them to friends and getting feedback and, you know, figuring out what could I, you know, what is a cost to produce in New York? In college, I had launched another consumer product that I had made in China. And I really didn't want to do overseas production again. So I really wanted to build a business that was here and local. And I wanted to make sure that it was possible the unit economics would support it. And it did. Okay. And just if it's not getting too much into the weeds, what was your reasoning behind wanting to stay stateside versus going to China? Well, there are a couple of reasons. Um, one it's it's a little hard to maintain control over like a diverse product line um, if you're producing overseas. So one of the things where I thought was kind of interesting with my business is if you look at our website, bellobelts.com, we have so many SKUs. But what's interesting about the way I set up the business is I don't actually have to carry that many SKUs because I have really fast turnaround times producing in New York. If I were to produce overseas, I could have to wait months to get product back. And so I'd have to carry much larger inventory numbers. So it's actually a little easier to manage if everything's domestic. You can carry much lower numbers. You can fulfill demands. You don't have to worry about stockouts um, for as long of a period. And, um, you know, you could really see the quality. I remember my first product that I invented um, in college. It took us a couple of rounds to get the product right. Um, we had to change factories overseas, because you know, to meet quality control for QVC. Just because, you know, when you're when you're not there, you don't necessarily you can't really see what's what's happening. Mm -hmm. um, but here, like I can walk to my factory, I can make very few of a unit at a time. In fact, I can make one single piece if I want of a certain skew, and um, it allows for like more flexibility, especially in the early stages of. Uh, of building a business. So that was really, you know, for the type of business I wanted to build where we have a huge variety and a lot of virtual SKUs, uh, it, it made sense to be local. Gotcha. And so when did this all start? Like, when did you first start playing around with making some samples and prototypes and showing them to your friends just to get a rough timeline here? So about, I'd say about a year and a half ago, and then we launched the company about a year ago. And so it's, we spent about 
six months doing um, prototyping and, you know, creating samples. I'd wear them around. I'd have my um, my now fiance wear them around and my parents and siblings um, and friends to make sure that like the products would hold up, uh, you know, especially for men's belts, like a lot of men wear their belts every single day. Mm -hmm. So I needed to know that if I sold something, it would be able to withhold, uh, withstand, you know, being worn every single day if need be. Women, you know, it's a little different how, you know, with my more like fashionable stylish belts, they're not actually, they're not typically worn every day. But for a men's belt, you really have to make sure, um, I mean, for all the belts, I want to make sure that they can, if you choose to wear them every day, last. Um, so go ahead. Oh, no, I was just um, going to ask. I mean, it sounds like you did. So it was a lot of wear testing to just see like how the product held up. But were you also doing were you also getting feedback on like, what do you think about the styling and the colors and the features? And like, how do you like the look, the thickness, the buckle, like all of the design aesthetic? Were you kind of getting feedback and tweaking that at the same time? Oh, yeah, 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 absolutely. I mean, that was that was a lot of that, like most of that six month process was going through. We do. I mean, we, we cast like so many different molds to see like, you know, different styles. And then it would be testing with the straps and making sure that every everything fit because all our buckles are um, buckles and straps are interchangeable. We'd have to make sure that if we make a buckle in say a one inch, that it would fit with the one inch strap. Mm-hmm. So there was a lot of testing that um, we start, started, we launched with 21 different types of leathers. So figuring out which of those 21 to launch with. Um, and, and actually, a lot of our first year of being live has just been testing. We threw a ton of products on the board. And we've learned so much about which ones are actually selling, uh, which colors sell better in like the skinny width versus a wider width, um, and how... Um, you know, which SKUs to really focus our marketing on. We're marketing on. We're in the process also of like paring down, like taking our, our big product mix and, you know, we're going to start cutting some SKUs to make the supply chain a little easier to manage. But a lot of that was really based on like what people are buying. Uh, a lot of our initial assumptions weren't necessarily correct. So <laughs> when, you know, as, as it always goes, right. after, um, <laughs> you know, for example, I had no idea that our best-selling skew would be uh, our queen bee belt. And originally, we launched it just in silver, but we had feedback from customers that they wanted it in gold. And now that gold bee is our top-performing skew. Yeah, you just never know. And so that's why, like, these tests and these iterations and then talking to your customer and getting the feedback is so key. Um, It sounds like you've really done a great job at that. So... Um, congratulations and, and great job for having that insight. Um, I'm curious to know, like when you were first starting, I mean, you live in, in New York and you said you kind of went through the garment district. Um, but like, where did you really start finding the right suppliers to work with? And what was that process like? And like, how did you know, okay, this is the right supplier? Because one of the things I hear from designers out there wanting to start or who, or who have started is a couple things. It's like, well, where do I find the right supplier? How do I know if I can trust them? How do I know if they're going to deliver on time? How do I know if this price is good? Um, and it's a big barrier and a big hurdle to get over, especially if you don't have background in this industry and you might not know like what red flags to be looking for. So what did that process look like for you in, in knowing that you had found the right partnerships or maybe you're still figuring it out, but any any um, advice on kind of how you've managed to, to do that in this first year and a half? Yeah, and so actually for me, my suppliers have all been really amazing and I got very lucky. And I think, um, you know, for me, I, I've never worked in the fashion industry before. I had worked in consumer products um, and manufacturing overseas, but never in New York before. Mm-hmm. And um, so I didn't, I had virtually no background in, um, you know, managing like a New York based like garment district supply chain. But what I did was I actually started going through some guides online, um, you know, saying, okay, where, who are the people in New York who still make belts? Who are the people in New York that, you know, sell leather? And whatnot. And so what I did was I just kind of went store by store, factory by factory, and, you know, told some people what I was looking to do. And honestly, like the people who are just nice, open to working with entrepreneurs who 
we're very welcoming in the door um, and we're willing to, to work with me and kind of we're a little patient with kind of teaching and sharing what they know about the industry. Like those were the ones I just had a good gut feel about and my gut's been great. Like they, they've really been supportive and kind of, I look at them as partners and growing a business. Yeah. But I know it's tough and, you know, I know people who've made the wrong decisions and um, have had to change factories multiple times. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I think part of it is like trying to judge not only the factory, but also the character of the person. A good supplier is going to want to sell a lot of product for you. They're going to want to make a lot of product and sell it to you. And if the price isn't right, you're not going to, as a, you know, as a retailer, you're not going to be able to sell anything and you're not going to be giving them much business right so being kind of transparent and talking you know what I've done is I say like here's my total land to cost here's what I'm trying to retail a belt for can you help me here like how can we work together like you know and working in a collaborative way that's what I found to be effective but um but it's not easy and you gotta you know be confident and um you know make sure you're working with like quality people Yeah. And I'm sure that you did a lot of things like just in those first initial conversations when you were talking to vendors and suppliers that you asked a lot of questions or you did you made a lot of inquiries that were you were asking strategic questions and maybe you just didn't even realize it because you had done this before and you've worked with suppliers and you've sourced and you knew like kind of what to ask and what to look out for and then to go like you said go with your gut check like go with like who you feel is going to work with you the best and help you get the best product out there and be a partner with you um so i i I would bet money that you did a lot of strategic things that just kind of came naturally from your experience um so that's great to hear you've you've had good luck with all of that um the other yeah go ahead sorry no go ahead the other thing the other thing i'd add is that you know i i would actually ask them a lot of their advice too so for example when i was designing you know designing a belt i would say okay what what tip sells best? Like, you know, which, which design do you think would work better? Like you've, you've been in the industry for a long time, like which color do you think will do better? Or at a leather supplier, like what are your best selling colors? Like Mm. which, which types of leather do best? Like instead of trying to, you know, unlike a lot of traditional designers who are trying to like really, you know, create something really new, really different, my strategy has been to kind of create items that are going to sell. And instead of trying to just come up with the most unique and creative designs, like I think about like what worked in the past, like how do we bring a creative twist to something, but you know, what sells, what colors do people buy? Um, what styles do people buy? We actually have access to a lot of designer molds from the past. And instead of saying like, let's create something new, like what, what variation of something in the past that worked well can we create to make it, you know, a modern twist on that version? Yeah, that's brilliant to just, I mean, that simple question of asking the leather supplier or the belt, the buckle supplier, the mold maker, you know, what do you make a ridiculous amount of? Like, what mold are you just constantly filling for these other brands or what color is always flying off the shelf? That's brilliant. Um uh, okay, so now you you found your suppliers, and what where are we at? Like, kind of in the first few months, and then you're like going to launch. What is that? What is this all looking like in the bigger picture? So we launched about a year ago, and so we built um, our comprehensive like online website has been up for a full year now. And uh, you know, part of part of the challenge initially was figuring out well, how do you merchandise over? thousand SKUs online in a way that people can find them. Like, how do you position the brand in a way that, you know, different customers can find you? And so, you know, after a year of being online, we're constantly tweaking, we're constantly like figuring out our messaging, who our target customer is, um, who we're, who our primary target is versus our secondary target. And so in terms of like, where we're at. We're mostly selling online. We're also doing a number of pop-ups. We were in a, um, a PR showroom for about seven months where we learned a lot from just like sales of products to customers. And um, we're now exploring um, other distribution strategies outside of direct consumer to consumer. Okay, gotcha. Um, all right, so backing up a little bit from there, like 
you you kind of you found your suppliers and you went through a bunch of molds and stuff but then like what I want to learn a little bit more because you said you know you work with your vendors now you can make one belt you could make 50 um and you you get the opportunity to carry very low inventory and have very low overhead compared to manufacturing overseas since your suppliers are in your backyard but like what does that really look like because I think it's a really fine balance and I know something a lot of people think about is well if I put up my website and I get 10 orders, then how quickly can my supplier make those 10 orders that I fulfill them when the customer expects it to be there in two days because everybody's used to Amazon Prime? So can you talk a little bit more about the specific logistics of like the low inventory versus um, offering so many SKUs and what that whole timeline and process looks like? Yeah, absolutely. And so, and, and just, you know, and, Full, discla- full, uh, full disclosure, we've been constantly like iterating on this process and we're figuring it out as we go along. Okay. But um, <laughs> in terms of in terms of where we're at now, so one of the things we, we've learned um, through a year of sales data is which sizes are most likely to sell, which colors are most likely to sell. So the, the most popular items, we keep stocked. Okay. So we know... We now know which items we're going to sell. We know, um, we don't know all of them, but we have a good idea of what colors sell best, which buckles sell best. Um, if we do some kind of promotion, we know um, which items are likely to sell after that type of promotion. So we have we have a good sense now that um, it's not perfect. And we do get those random one-off otters Um for things that aren't typically popular, but we have a good sense of like the most popular items now. And those tend to be the ones that we feature on our homepage um, or in the early product collection assortments. Um, Two, we also know which sizes are are likely to sell. So it's not just the product, but it's the sizes. Um, And so there are just certain um, certain types of belts that will sell better in smaller sizes. For example, like our waist belts will sell better in smaller sizes than our hip belts. So there's that kind of mix. There's also the seasonal mix. So uh, in certain times a year, people are more likely to buy thin belts versus thick belts. Certain times a year, people are more likely to buy colorful belts versus um, darker colors. Certain times of year, people are more likely, um, and actually not times a year, but for certain width belts, some people are more likely to um, buy like neutrals versus bright colors. So we've kind of gotten the mix now of what people are most likely to purchase. But what's interesting on the supply chain side is we'll carry the most popular ones, but then on the straps, we'll carry unsized versions of the belts. And because we put them, we, we have snaps that um, interchange all the belts and buckles, we don't have to actually size the belt until the end. Mm. So so that allows us to carry fewer um, fewer of the larger sizes, if mm-hmm. that makes sense. Yeah. So if you always have like some smaller ones on hand, you can always cut down something that's bigger um, and unsized. So that helps us a little bit in the supply chain. Um, and then the fact that the products are interchangeable also allows us to really cut da- cut down on the number of SKUs we carry. So like if you take, for example, a black uh, half-inch skinny strap, that could go with our ladybug belt, our queen bee belt, our sea turtle belt, our wheat bow belt. It can go with a lot of different belts. So instead of counting each of those black belt with a specific buckle as a SKU, we can have that one strap as a SKU that meets like you know, several different buckle combinations. Right. And you all of a sudden exponentially increase your skew count very quickly. Yeah. And so while it, while it creates for some, uh, some challenges <laughs> in, um, in inventory management and like syncing with Shopify, which is the platform we're on. Yeah. Um, it does, it does allow us to carry much lower inventory levels, um, which, which is actually good as a small startup. You don't have to have as much capital tied up into inventory yeah. and you don't have to worry. You know, you also ask like, how do you kind of communicate with your customers if um, people expect everything within two days? So part of it is, you know, for, you know, just having, having that whole handcrafted made to order, like design your own element on your website, like being clear with shipping, like being clear on your homepage, like how long it'll take for, you know, people to get products and also 
kind of understanding the nature of the product. So if you're if you're buying certain kinds of products on Amazon, like you expect them to be there like yesterday. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but for um, and for certain types of like if you need a dress for an event, um, there's often like a time sensitivity around it. But for a belt, there's usually not as much of a time sensitivity unless you're gifting, in which case people tend to order a you know more than just a couple of days before some before the gift is needed sure uh, you know unless you're ordering on Amazon people are just risk averse in that in that sense <laughs> gotcha um so it, it sounds like you initially just kind of pulled the trigger and said let's go and learn as we go in terms of what you would need to stock and what your inventory would look like and now with a year of data you're continually analyzing the numbers and looking at where does it make sense to increase or decrease inventory and as you mentioned earlier even completely cut some SKUs that are just not performing it doesn't make sense to have them um, but you initially just said let's just do it and trial by error and we'll learn as we go and and see what happens yeah I I, I don't think that approach works for everyone and I <laughs> I wouldn't I wouldn't recommend it for a first-time entrepreneur but this is the fourth startup I've worked on okay. and so I can kind of stomach some of the uh, <laughs> the uncertainties <laughs> and um, you know I've, I've never been a, a super risk averse person so um, you know having like a, a broad business understanding I think helps I, I wouldn't just you know, go in blind. Um, I wouldn't recommend that for most people, but, um, but that's, you know, (laughs) well, and I think, you know, I think the nature of your product allows for that a little more than like, let's say a dress where, or like, you know, a garment where there's, um, a little bit more in terms of like, well, grading all the patterns and getting them all cut. And it's just a different beast to tackle than, than a belt product. Um, uh, there's, there's, a, there's. I mean, to me, I just see a few more variables and places for things to go terribly wrong, and and the timeline a little bit longer to develop some production, um, than some of the stuff. So I think your product line is giving you that flexibility and versatility to react really quickly on the fly. Yeah, exactly. And you know, there's a lot of you know pre-existing standards out there like with sizing and fit um you know the nice thing about a belt buckle a belt is that there's five holes on it so even if you're off by a little bit you know in terms of sizing there's a little bit of wiggle room yeah. whereas like you buy a dress in the wrong size it's unlikely to fit <laughs> <laughs> um yeah 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 so a little bit more flexibility which is great um, you mentioned earlier a comment about sort of tying up capital. Um, do you mind if I ask, did, did you self-fund this and kind of just bootstrap it or did you go after funding or where do you get the money to back this and, and get it off the ground initially? So I've been self-funding the business. Okay. Gotcha. Um, and, and how did you, like at that year launch, um, about a year ago, what did that actually look like? Because I, I think it's not it's not as simple as like putting up a Shopify site and hitting go and then you're like, well, where are all my customers? How did you actually promote and get people to come to your site and create customers and get the word out there? Yeah, no, cus- customer acquisition is definitely like one of the biggest challenges for any direct-to-consumer e-commerce business. Mm-hmm. And it's um, it's something that we're constantly refining, we're constantly iterating on um, and exploring the best and most profitable, you know, the highest ROI ways to promote the product and brand. Um, we have done some events, which have been um, good at getting press involved and getting people um, to the website and to buy. We um, we were in a, sh- a, a store in Soho that had like a showroom element to it, which was helpful and really like getting more customers and understanding the consumer and what sold, what do, you know, what sold, what didn't sell. We've uh, played around with different social media ads. Um, we've done, you know, just a whole a whole bunch of different things. Um, we've also uh, worked with a number of charities. So um, 
one thing that's actually been great is like, I love engaging with customers in person. Mm -hmm. I love to see people touch and feel the product, see, you know, when you lay out a whole table of product, like what people gravitate to. And we did that at our first uh, launch event. And I've done that at n several pop-up events and whatnot. And I always like to see, you know, if I lay out buckles and straps, like, what combinations are the customers or potential customers putting together? Uh, what colors are they touching? What buckles are they spending a little extra time playing with? What are they trying on and they're not buying? Mm. Um, what, how do I merchandise it so that people can, you know, can figure out that they're interchangeable, um, but also visualize and see how the belt looks together. So I, I spent a lot of time just getting in front of as many people as I could. So we would go to, you know, we'd have uh, outings at country clubs where there'd be a, a charity partner and we'd have a table there and donate a portion of the um, the proceeds to that charity. So that's that's been something that we've done. Yeah, and that is, I mean, I love how much you emphasize the value of, I mean, you sound to really enjoy it, which is great, but the value of interacting and engaging with your customer in a real life setting and just watching people and seeing, like you said, all those little nuances, what do they gravitate towards on the table? What are they touching? What are they trying on? And then not buying, you know, and just seeing that in real life and then talking to them and getting their feedback is priceless input where I think, you can't just throw up a website. You have to, on some level, still engage in real life. So it's really cool you've created so many different opportunities to to do these partnerships with charities or do pop-up shops. Um, I imagine, have you been able to do uh, some pop-up shops with like, um, or partnerships inside of boutiques since, you know, maybe they don't really carry that many belts. Like you said, it's not something a lot of people are offering. So they have the apparel, you come in with the belt. It's super complimentary, but non-competitive. Has Have you been able to create some partnerships like that as well? So we're, ju we're just starting that process. Okay. So, you know, really in the first year, it was figuring out like what were the right products and we were in one store. Um, but now, now after we have a year of data, we know like what's going to sell, what prices work. We've done a lot of testing with pricing. Um, and so, you know, we now know which SKUs are, are right. So we're, we're starting those conversations now. Um, and, um, you know, one of the other things we've done, which I didn't mention, is we have these benefit buckles where we work with different charities to help promote their causes. So we had our first uh, benefit buckle. We launched um, at the end of 2017, and that was with Play for Pink, which is a division of the um, Breast Cancer Research Foundation. And so 100% of the profits from those buckles go directly to support breast cancer research. And so we're working, we're gonna announce another charity soon um, for our dog buckle and have like an event around that too. So we're, we're kind of mixing and matching from like in-store events to, um, you know, charity pop-up events to also like hosting events around specific buckles and really catering to specific audiences there. Gotcha. Very, very cool. Um, it sounds like you guys are getting pretty creative with some of the ways you're getting your name out there and doing cool partnerships and supporting great causes. So great job on that. And congratulations on all the success. Um, I, what, what has prompted you to, so you started out as direct to consumer DTC specifically, mostly online, although some in-person pop-up shops and events, was there something specific that, that triggered the inspiration to start doing some wholesale with boutiques? Cause I know a lot of brands really stay in the DTC space and don't want to go into wholesale. I'm curious to know, you know, what inspired that or did something happen or, or you know, what, what brought on that decision to explore that avenue of distribution? So I think, I think what for us, uh, just seeing how well the products sell in person mm -hmm. has really, you know, got me thinking. And so when I first launched the brand, I, I was pretty adamant about staying direct to consumer mm -hmm. and I didn't want anything to do with wholesale. And, you know, I'm still not sure who the right wholesale partners are. Um, if it's there, if there's other relationships, we're, we're figuring it out as we go along and we're in active discussions, but we're, you know, this day to day, we're still direct to consumer. But I think, um, you know, just really looking at like 
how how products sorry not how people interact with the products in person just really got me thinking like they see oh my god the, the the smell of the leather if i had if i could tell you how many people have commented on how good the leather smells <laughs> i don't know how to convey that like online how good leather smells right yeah or being able to like really touch and feel and see like how soft the leather is like the leather really is amazing like the type of leather we use so we use this italian mostly italian leather but our suede for example is from Spain, because that's where I found the softest suede. Um, when you actually touch and feel the product, like people really just like melt over the quality. And it's hard to convey that online, partly because our prices are so value oriented that people don't know how good the quality is. Like the price almost signals that it would be a different quality level. Yeah. And so I think I think that's what's been like a little tricky online. You have to really, you don't know how you expect something of the quality we offer to be even more expensive. Yeah. And I, oh, I, oh boy, we could gab for hours on the psychology of pricing and something I'm like really fascinated by. Um, and so that's so interesting. You make that comment. Cause I know, you know, on, on your story page, on your website, you talk about how you work with these really superior, um, uh, leathers and materials but then you cut out the middleman and so you get the customer gets this really high-end belt for a much more reasonable price but that can almost be a barrier in itself because the price sends a signal to the customer that it might not be that great but then when they see it in real life it's a completely different experience so um i imagine that was a a barrier that you kind of have slowly discovered along the way or was that something you thought this could be a challenge yeah i think i think it's just something I think it's even less of a barrier because we, we do sell quite a bit, of, you know, online. It's just, um, I think it, it just presents as, I almost look at it as an opportunity. It's an opportunity okay. to be able to even, you know, raise our prices in store. People, people are always like, what I started to notice is customers were shocked by how low the prices were. Mm. Now, now it's also like, you have to also think about there's different segments in the market. So, you know, if you're taking like a simple belt, like a simple men's belt, the prices mat like the value and the prices like people have heard that story before. And so there's kind of like one set of pricing expectations for like a simple men's belt. But if you're looking at like one of those really cool, like, you know, handcrafted enameled, uh, you know, like our like our sea turtle or our hot lips belt or a lucky elephant belt, or like our floral deco belt, like floral deco belt they're they're really just like much more intricate pieces that look they look expensive because if they were at retail they'd be like much more expensive than we have them on our website right if they are priced with like a traditional retail markup mm -hmm. so so it's almost thinking like across our SKUs, like which SKUs could be supported at like higher prices and also at retail and which SKUs should should remain online only yeah. And, and there's, and there's like just a different, like, you know, different products, like really the perceived value yeah. is very, very different for like a simple product versus like a more intricate detailed product. And so it, it creates some, um, a little trickiness in pricing. Well, it does because my first thought then was, okay, so if you have the pricing on your website as though you're cutting out the middleman and then you start going to wholesale channels where there's different markups involved, you know, there's a whole nother markup because there's a, there's the middleman just got introduced. Um, and maybe this is something you're still trying to figure out. Um, but if you wouldn't mind, uh, sharing a little bit of your thoughts on how to handle, okay, you have these these items on the site and they're offered for price X, but if you offer them at retail in, in a boutique, they need to be 2X, let's say, for simple numbers. But then that retailer might feel a little bit undercut if you're selling it for half the price on your site. So is that something you've thought about or like how to get around that? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think, I think where, what I've been figuring out is like which SKUs should be priced for retail, um, which SKUs look, you know, look and feel and have that, which ones are right for retail. And it's also not always obvious, like what costs more than others. So, 
certain belts look like they would cost a lot more and certain belts look like they would cost a lot less, but it's not clear or transparent to the customer. You mean in like your hard manufacturing costs? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So, so the way I've been thinking about it is having like certain SKUs that are online only Mm -hmm. and then certain SKUs that are, you know, also available for retail and are priced accordingly for both retail and online. Gotcha. But, yeah. but it's tricky. It's, it's, it it's an art, it's an art, not a science. And it's something <laughs> we're, we're playing around with, um, just because, you know, people do really, you know, really like the belts in person. And so, you know, also the other thing to think about is just taking, you could still take a lower margin, um, at retail and thinking of it as like a customer acquisition channel. Yeah. And yeah. so you may not be making much money selling wholesale on a belt, but if the customer can reorder online, then it's a great it's a great way to uh, introduce customers to your brand. Essentially, you know, getting like exposure and you know, if, especially when you have so many more SKUs online than you would have on a you know a traditional retail. Right. So right. The, the the profit is not just in that one uh, retail transaction that they make at the store that you sold that belt at wholesale. It's really you're looking at like lifetime customer acquisition value. Yeah. And, um, I think there's, there's an element of that. Um, and there's also, we've had a lot of repeat customers. And so we have people who have bought, you know, they buy a belt and then suddenly they're understanding the value of like an interchangeable mix and match. Mm -hmm. So you have a belt, a buckle, you get another belt strap and another buckle. And now suddenly you have four combinations from two belts. Right. Yeah. That's really cool. So with every, with every piece that you add, you get additional combinations. So, you know, taking like a, a black belt and a white belt on the same on the same buckle suddenly like your summer and your winter or, you know, changing up a simple buckle with a more interesting buckle on the same belt. It's, you know, two belts all you have with uh, one extra piece, you're not really spending a lot to get an additional look. Right, right. right. Yeah, no, that's really smart of how you've built the whole product. Um Okay. Uh, is there any other like big lessons or advice that you've learned in the past year and a half of kind of diving headfirst into the fashion industry and starting this, um, you know, with with essentially not much, you know, you have all this knowledge from these other startups, but no specific knowledge in the fashion industry. Like, what are some of the, the biggest takeaways or advice you could offer out to people out there who are wanting to start something or who maybe are in the middle of, of doing their own thing that, that you may maybe learn the hard way and you'd love to share with other people so they don't go through the same pains? So I think I'd say come up with three things. So one, I would say to like keep iterating. So if something's not working, just kind of keep experimenting until you find that like one thing that's working for you and, you know, have an open mind about it because it's not not necessarily going to be what you think it was going to be. So I think just kind of being open-minded and like constantly like eager to try different things, mm-hmm. um, that would be good. Um, and that would be like what I'd strongly advise to anyone. Um, the other thing is surround yourself with people who, uh, n- who are better at the things that you, you yourself don't feel you're great at. Mm-hmm. So for example, last summer, you know, right after we launched when we were building out our Instagram page, I had never been much of like a, a big Instagrammer, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and, uh, but I, I ended up finding some like great savvy interns who love taking pictures, who love styling, who like pretty much taught me how to like use a phone to take pictures. <laughs> and, and part of it is just like being okay with having people who are a lot younger than you, a lot less experienced than you in most things, like being able to like sit there and like teach you something that you don't know and not, not feeling like weird about it, right? Like uh, embracing it and like taking feedback even from people who, you know, don't know much about, you know, who have not, not don't know much, who don't have like a ton of experience in what you're doing, but they, they know how to do one, one thing really well. Um, that you don't know how to do as well. So I think that that's been part of um, part of it is just figuring out like, you know, learning from people who have expertise in areas that I don't. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then also, like, lastly, just 
being vulnerable and asking for help, like when you need it. Mm. I think a lot of times like people and especially founders, um, and I've been there in the past too, where you're just so buttoned up and like trying to protect your image and seem like you have it all together. <laughs> and a, a lot of the times you just don't and like you need help and you, you, you need advice on something specific or um, you need an introduction. And I think like when you're vulnerable with people and you don't always say like everything's perfect, um, people are more likely to help you. And at the end of the day, when you're, you know, running a business, you need help. Like you can't yeah. do it all. Yeah, and it goes full circle back to what you said with with the um, the younger folks out there helping you with Instagram. I feel like you and I are a similar age, and I'm like, I don't know this whole Instagram thing. Like, I'm okay with it, but like boy, these 20-somethings sure know what they're doing a little bit more than I do. And so it's like, you know, have that vulnerability that like, I'm not the best at this or I need some help. And it may be someone in a completely different space or who is even like quite a bit younger than you that's really, really good at that and being okay with asking for support in that way. Oh, yeah. I mean, you should have seen the Snapchat tutorials I was getting. (laughs) I could not figure it out. So we haven't been using Snapchat. But um, but I I think sometimes you just kind of have to laugh at it and, you know, keep positive attitude and keep going. (laughs) Yeah. And uh, boy, Snapchat is one I have not even tried to tackle yet because I'm like, what? This is uh, this this is not going to work for I can't do this. Um, you know, so then another lesson there is also just kind of choosing, like, where are the right places to pay attention to at the end of the day? Like, where is your potential market actually hanging out? And I don't know, you know, what your exact demographic is, but they may not be on Snapchat. They may not be on Twitter. They may just be on Instagram and Facebook. And those are the two places. So picking and choosing your battles is also another brilliant thing. You can't do everything. Yeah. And, and actually just like keep keeping on like understanding your customer. Like, I think one one thing I've learned over the years is you just have to be like so focused. Like, who's your customer? Like, where do they shop? Like, how do you get to them? How do they communicate? Where where are they? What social media are they using? Where are they shopping? What are they doing in their spare time? Like, where are they going? Um, and how do you communicate with them? And it's um, it, it's a challenge. But at the end of the day, like, I really just like, like almost like obsessively focus on like, who is this customer? And and sometimes the customer you think you're starting with and targeting isn't the customer that, you know, ends up really loving your product. Like when I launched, I thought we'd be really focused like just on millennials. Mm. And we've sold really well, um, you know, in older demographics. So, you know, we've sold really well, um, people are in their 30s, 40s, 50s, but also like even some women in like their 60s have really liked our product, like fashion forward, you know, hip women, you know, a little older, like they also really like our product. So kind of like figuring out which customers to focus on. Is it men? Is it women? Is it older? Is it younger? Like all those decisions like really impact like your entire marketing strategy. Yeah. And so like, is there anything specific that you're doing to continually understand like, who is that person? How old are they? What are they reading? You know, where do they go to lunch? Like, do you do surveys? Are you looking at um, analytics you get off of Google and Facebook? Like, where are you continually getting and refining this information about who your customer is? I mean, through multiple channels, like we, you know, every event we do, we see which, which demographics perform better. Every, um, you know, on social media, we, we also do a lot of like A-B testing on social media. So we'll run, we'll run an ad and we'll run it in like different types of demographics. And we'll just say compare like which did better, A or B, like, you know, and just constantly keep refining the messaging and um, always like changing one variable so that we could test and measure and see what's working. Mm, okay. Yeah. Very but it's a, lot of, it's a lot of testing and, yeah. you know. It's like I said, it's, it's an art, not a, not a true <laughs> science. So yeah. If I had all the answers, uh, you know, it would be a, d- a very different situation. But we're learning and it's, you know, we're iterating and, you know, something's working. Yeah, no, it is. And I think, like you said, it's a matter of paying attention and then iterating according to what you see happening and, 
just being okay with that you need to change that you need to drop that style that you personally loved but is just not performing and this other one that you're like wow who would have thought now I need to offer it in three different colors and I had no idea it would be the best seller so you know just being okay with really paying attention to what's working and then adjusting accordingly so it sounds like you've done a really great job at that um, I would love to know um, I know you mentioned it earlier but we will we will say it again where can everybody find you and and all the stuff you're doing online so our website is bellowbelts.com. That's bellow, B-E-L-L-O, belts.com. Awesome. Like bellow, like hello with a B. Oh, there we go. Perfect. Very, very easy. And I will definitely link to that in the show notes as well. So I would love to end the interview with the question I ask everybody at the end of the show. And that is, what is one thing people never ask you about working in the fashion industry that you wish they would? So as a person with a business background, I wish people kind of understood, asked me about, you know, why I make some of the decisions I make from a business perspective and not necessarily a fashion perspective. So for example, we don't do like, this is our spring collection, our winter collection, our, you know, we don't date our collections. We don't put products on sale. We don't, um, at least products that we're not discontinuing, mm. we don't, um, we don't think of things in like a season to season basis. We're not doing things the traditional way fashion has been done for years. So we kind of like do things a little differently. You know, we, we create pieces that we think will sell, um, that are good quality pieces that we think will sell this year, next year, and 10 years from now. Mm-hmm. We want to create timeless pieces. Like as someone who has a, a business background, like, you know, I didn't go to fashion school. I went to Harvard business school. And, um, you know, I think about, think about things just a little differently and not necessarily with the how, why is it done this way, but why are we doing it the way we're doing it? Mm-hmm. Um, And that's, you know, I think every decision I make, it's less about like, well, what's the standard in the industry? It's more about, you know, what do I think would make sense? Like, you know, taking the whole fashion market aside, like and looking at just as like a consumer business. Yeah, that's really smart, because I think it's really easy to get stuck in the I have to put out a new collection every season and then I have to discount it. And that's a really tough model to maintain. So the coming at it from the perspective of how do I create these timeless pieces that continue to live? And then you just do subtle iterations. You know, maybe you introduce a different belt width or a different color in that leather. Um, or, you know, you do your queen bee in, in gold in addition to silver. Um, and we actually try to, we try to introduce like one new buckle a month mm. and then one new charity partnership a quarter okay. so we're, we're innovating but we're innovating on our own terms yeah you know if we if we see an opportunity like it was valentine's day we introduced a heart buckle um you know spring over the course of, like the spring months we introduced a couple of new buckles like but we did it because we wanted to and we had good pieces um and we didn't have to build a whole collection around it. Right. Just add a couple of pieces to your current collection. Yeah, I love that. I love that. Well, it's very clear you have a super, super strong um, business mindset. And of course, coming from Harvard Business School, I can imagine they they taught you quite well. It definitely shows. So congratulations on your fourth startup and your serial entrepreneurship. Um, I can't wait to see how this journey continues to unfold and, and watch you guys grow. So thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today, Alison. And it was really lovely to hear uh, your story and get to meet you. Thanks so much. It was great talking to you too. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Successful Fashion Designer Podcast. I really appreciate each and every one of you. As a reminder, if you have a Facebook group that you're in where there's startup fashionistas who are working on or who are already have their own brand and are working on building it, do everyone a favor and share this episode in a Facebook group that you're part of. I know they'll thank you for it and they will really be happy to learn all the insights that Allison used to grow her business over the last year. Last, if you'd like to learn more about any of the resources mentioned in this episode, you can always visit the show notes at sfdnetwork.com 51. Thank you so much and I'll talk to you in the next Successful Fashion Designer Podcast episode.